The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Jesus is Better Than. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the, the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. I'll catch you up on where we've been at here lately. We've been been taking a break from our... uh, our preaching series where where we called King Jesus, where we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the gospel of Mark, right? We've been, we kind of put that on hold. And so for the last two weeks, um, and actually we'll pick back up next week. I think Pastor Justin's back in the pulpit. Um, So we'll pick right back up. But over the last two weeks and this week, we've been in this series called Jesus is Better Than. And we've had a couple of guest preachers who have come and they've served our congregation very well. Thank, Thank God for those men. Uh, and it's my privilege, my, my joy to bring to you the closing piece of this puzzle to tell you that Jesus is better than your reputation. And so that's where we're going today. We're going to kind of sink our, our feet into Philippians 3. Uh, I don't have time to really do this passage justice. There's just so much good theology here that it, it would take us, I think if we did it justice, it would take us months. So I'm, I'm going to spare you. I'm going to give you 40 minutes here. Uh, to unpack this. And, and so to do so, we need some context. We need to know what's going on. We're jumping right in the middle of a book here, and so we need some idea about what's going on. So Paul is writing to a church in Philippi, and Philippi is a Roman colony uh, in Europe. This is actually the first church that Paul planted in Europe. And, um, and since this is a R- Roman colony, most of the people in this church are Gentile Christians, meaning that they don't have a Jewish heritage. They come, they're much like us, like we're we're, most of us are just white, German, Anglo-Saxon, whatever. We don't, most of us don't have a Jer- Jewish heritage, and we're much like these people in Philippi. And this was Paul's mission. And, and when we look through, the, uh, through Acts, we see that Paul's mission and ministry was to bring the gospel to the people who were considered to be outsiders by the Jews, so Paul has brought the gospel. He's planted a church to this um, Gentile um, village, if you will. And, and by God's grace, this church has become a healthy church. 
Not a, not a perfect church because a perfect church doesn't exist, right? A perfect church won't exist until Jesus comes back and completely purifies his bride. But this is a healthy church. And so what constitutes a healthy church is this, that they have been faithful to the gospel, right? They've been faithful to the gospel in the midst of difficulty and struggling. So Paul's purpose in writing this letter is to encourage these Philippians to continue in their faith, to continue growing in the gospel. He's saying the gospel doesn't just save us so we can sit around with our hands in our pockets waiting for Jesus to come back. The gospel is meant for us to grow in, that we, as we go deeper and deeper, we gain a better understanding, and as we understand the gospel more and more, it changes who we are from the inside out. And that is what Paul's purpose is in writing to these Philippians. But in our passage, what we're gonna see is Paul's also giving them some warning to say, hey, your, your health is a great thing, and I want to continue to be a healthy church, but your health is in jeopardy, right? Because there's people who are in the church who are threatening the health of your church by distorting the gospel, by stunting the gospel growth. And these are the Judaizers. These are the people that Paul calls the, um, the dogs and the uh, evildoers and the mutilators of flesh, right? Paul has... He's name-calling here. He doesn't have a high view of these people because of what they're doing. Um, and, and what they're doing is this. They're distorting the gospel. They're harming the church. But they're doing it by taking this news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And they're adding to it. They're trying to tack extra stuff onto it, specifically circumcision. They're saying, sure, you can believe in Jesus, but what really matters is if you get circumcised. If you, Jesus plus circumcision equals acceptance or salvation. And the undertone of this, what this is really saying is, is these people are saying that I can make myself acceptable to God based on what I do or what I don't do. And at the core of this, this is legalism, straight up legalism. And legalism is anti-gospel. The gospel cannot flourish in a legalistic culture because this is what it says. Legalism screams that Christ isn't, uh, isn't sufficient for salvation in himself. It says that we must actually contribute something to Christ in order to earn our salvation. And although in our church we don't have Judaizers running around promoting circumcision, at least to my knowledge, I don't know of anyone who's doing that, uh, we are still subject to this false belief that we can contribute to our salvation, that we can become more acceptable to God based upon what we do. If I read my Bible a little bit more, God will love me more. If I pray more, maybe he'll like me more. You know, if I give more of my money away, then God will accept me. It's, it's, it's this running list of what I should do to get God's acceptance. And then, and then there's the times where we really mess up, where we sin big time, and we feel like we're on outs with God, that I've got to work. I've kind of like got to work to get back into his good graces so that he'll accept me, that he'll be happy with me. And this is legalism. It's a, it's a temptation to rely on our own self-righteousness to make us acceptable to God and still very much around in the church today, not just here at Sacred City Church, but in churches across the world. But legalism is far more than just this conscious belief that I can be saved by my good works. Tim Keller says it like this, that, that legalism is a web of attitudes of the heart and character. It's the thought that God's love for us is conditioned on something that we can be or do. He says it's legalism is the attitude that I can offer certain things like my ethical goodness, 
my relative avoidance of deliberate sin or my faithfulness to the Bible or to the church. I can use these things to support the work that Christ has done and contribute to God's goodwill toward me. That is what legalism looks like. It's this idea that we can sort of prop ourselves up so that God will look at us slightly different, maybe look at us in a better light. But Paul, what Paul does here in our passage is he opposes the legalists. He says, you want to know if you're a Christian? Like, do you want to really know? You want evidences of being a Christian? Like, you don't need to look to circumcision. That would be kind of awkward. Are you a Christian? Prove it. I don't want to have that conversation with anybody, right? <laughs> we, we don't need to look to our good works or our moral uprightness to know if we're a Christian. What Paul says, he gives us three marks of a Christian in our passage, that if you believe these, if you believe that you've been saved by faith or by, by grace through faith in Christ alone, then, then these three things will manifest in your life. And so let's take a look at verse three, what Paul tells us. He says, uh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Verse three, for we are the circumcision. He's saying that we are God's people. Circumcision was used to mark God's people. He says that we are God's people. And this is what we look like. We worship by the Spirit of God. Paul, Paul doesn't say they worship God. Paul says we worship by the Spirit of God. What does that mean? That means that when we put our faith in the gospel, we believe that Jesus saves us from our sin, that he takes us from our life of sin and death to our life of righteousness or our new life. He doesn't just give us a new life, but he also gives us the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us the Holy Spirit that is at work in our lives. And, and the work of the Holy Spirit is to make, to apply the gospel, to take the gospel, the good news of Christ, and apply it to every part of our lives. And so as the Holy Spirit does this, as the Holy Spirit brings us good news, we worship God, but we do so by his spirit. So we're led to worship through his spirit. And when Paul talks about worship, it's not just this here, like where we come together and sing four or five songs and then high-five each other and walk out the door till next week. What Paul's talking about is all of life is worship, that every aspect of our life is meant to be one of worship, of devotion to God, of service to God. That's what Paul is talking about. So anyone can come in and walk off the street, sing some songs, lift up their hands, and, and, and worship God, but it takes a Christian, the work of the Spirit in your heart, to make all of your life worship. So Paul says, Christians worship by the Spirit of God, and he says, he goes on to say that they glory in Christ Jesus. As the Holy Spirit leads us into worship, what he does is he focuses our eyes on Jesus. He, Jesus becomes our object of worship. J.A. Motyer says, glorying in Christ or boasting in Christ, as the New Test or as a NIV translation puts it, glorying in Christ is when we enthusiastically appreciate who Jesus is and what he has done. And when we see that, we see that he alone is worthy of all worship. That's what it means to glory in Christ. Why? Well, because Jesus has rescued us from our sin, that we were, we were like inexperienced swimmers swimming out into the ocean, right? Going deeper and deeper, and all of a sudden a current pulls us under, right? Our lungs fill with water. We can't get to the top. We're pulled down into the darkness, and Jesus is the lifeguard, the fearless lifeguard who runs after us and rescues us up, pulls us out of the deep end. Jesus is the one who pulls us out from the crashing waves of sin and death. 
It's Jesus who does this. And we see that when we see what he's rescued us from and we see what he's done, we see that he's opened up heaven. We see that Jesus eases all of our fears. He brings comfort to our pain. He's, he's the, the, the satisfying thing of all of our desires. He makes us sing. He gives us a reason to come. And the, how many people, how many things do you know that you actually sing to, right? Like you might sing to your wife or your husband, you know, serenade them on special occasions. But we come together to sing to God because of what he's done. When we see Jesus, when we boast in Jesus, when we glory in Jesus, he becomes our divine obsession. Everything revolves around him. Our hearts long and ache for him. Our minds are filled with thoughts of him. With our lives, we want to be like him. So to glory in Christ is to be obsessed with him, to be infatuated with who Jesus is. And Paul, so Paul says that, that that's a second mark. So he's saying to worship by the Spirit of God and to glory in Christ Jesus. And he says to put no confidence in the flesh. What he's saying is that we can't rely on anything we do for our salvation. If Jesus is the lifeguard who has ran into the ocean to, to pull us out, then we have nothing to boast about. We can't, we can't boast about being able to throw our arm around him, right? It was Jesus who came and scooped us up. He was, it was him who, who pumped the water out of our lungs, breathed life back into us. It was all Christ. John Calvin says, to rely on anything outside of Christ is to rely on the flesh. That means if you boast in Christ, there's no room for confidence in your accomplishments or anything else in the world. It has to rest completely on Christ. So Paul lays all this out. Those are the marks of the Christians, and, and he's anticipating the rebuttals from those who are drawn toward legalism, those who would say, well, Paul, look, we should be confident. Like, look at me. I'm moral. I've got my life together. I got stuff going on for me. I've done the things that God requires of me. And there's part of us that wants to do the same thing too. Like part of us, I think all of us want to take, take credit for our actions and use those at way, for what makes us acceptable to God. We have this tendency to want to put confidence in the flesh, even if it's just a little bit. So that way I know I contributed something. And Paul relates to us here. He, he says that, you know, he's got reasons to boast in the flesh too. In fact, he says, if anybody has reason to boast in the flesh, it's me. It's Paul. He's saying, and he, he's going to show us here. He lays out his reputation, all of his, his achievements here in verses 5 and 6. All of his religi uh, religious accomplishments. And, and the people that he's talking to here will be quite impressed with all of these things that he's listing out here. And I'll spare you some of the Bible nerdy nerdiness stuff that... that that this stuff exposes, and I'll just say this. This is what Paul's doing here is like Michael Jordan taking all of his MVP titles, all of his championship titles, all of the records and honors that he has from being in the NBA and comparing it to my participation certificate that I got for fifth grade summer basketball camp, <laughs> right? There's no comparison here. There's no contest. Paul is on a whole nother level here of confidence in the flesh. And in verse 44, verses 4 and 5, he shows us what he's known for. Like, this is Paul's reputation. This is the name that he's made for himself. 
I was in uh, Cedar Falls uh, a couple weeks ago visiting some friends, some old college friends. We were sitting in a coffee shop, and one of my friends has to get up to leave to go pick her car up from the auto shop. And, and so she makes the announcement, sorry, guys, I got to go, got to get my car. And one of my friends turns to her, what? You have a car? I didn't know you drove. I didn't even know you had a driver's license. She was completely shocked. Apparently, this girl really loves to ride her bike, right? She rides her bike everywhere. And, and so I was like, Oh, good for her, you know, save, save the earth, you know, go green. <laughs> and, um, and then what happened next kind of threw me off guard. I just couldn't believe her reaction. goes, oh, my gosh, seriously? It, like, that's literally what I want to be known for. She's like, I want to be known as the girl who rides her bike everywhere. I'm not joking. Like, that's what she literally said. And in my mind, I was like, Seriously? Like, out of all the noble things that a human being can aspire to, you want to be known for riding your bike. Like, I mean, I got, I got kids in my neighborhood who I know are kids that ride their bike, right? That's what they're known for in my neighborhood. But here she is saying, I want to be known for riding my bike. And she is. She's known for riding her bike. And I say all of that just to say this, that your reputation, like what you're known for, is based upon your actions and accomplishments. And these things inform the way in which you're perceived by others, the way others perceive you and see you, and the way you perceive yourself, right? So if you ride your bike a lot, you become known as a girl who rides her bike everywhere. If you bless people with time, money, and resources, you become known as a generous person. If you're highly educated, multiple degrees, super smart, you become known as the super smart person, or we'll just call you doctor for short. So it's our accomplishments, it's, it's our actions that determine the type of relationship that we have. And here's the thing, our reputations must be maintained. Like we have to, if we want to keep what we're known for, we have to keep doing the things that we're known for. If, if girl who's known for riding her bike everywhere goes out and buys a huge pickup truck, she's no longer going to be known as the girl who rides her bike everywhere, right? It just takes that one switch. Or if you're known as the, the businessman with a good reputation... It takes one bad business deal to, to, to tarnish that reputation. Maybe you become known as, as the dishonest businessman. Whatever we do, we have to keep up our reputation. And in a, a recently published book um, called The Reputation Economy, the author says uh, it's important that we keep up our reputations because our reputations are the most valuable asset that we have whether you're in business or as an individual. Your reputation is the most important, most valuable asset that you have. Why? Well, this is why I think. I don't know what he would say, but I think that our, our reputation is so valuable because it's not only what we're known for, but it's our ticket to acceptance, right? If we do certain things around certain types of people, we become accepted by them. These are the things, it's, it's our reputation, the things that we do that take us from being on the outside and bring us to the inside. Think about it. Think about, and our world works this way. If you want to go to college, what do you do? You apply. You, you submit a resume, which a resume is basically just a catalog of your reputation. It's the things that say, hey, look, this is what I want to be known for. Look at my grades. Look at, my, look at how I excel in sports or in music or, or whatever it is. And so you submit that resume to the advisory uh, or for the uh, admissions board, and they, they will either approve you, they'll welcome you into their institution, or they'll reject you. The same is true of, of work. You apply for a job, 
What do you do? You submit a resume. You say, these are my accomplishments. And then your future, hopeful future employers are going to look at it and, and they're going to size you up and say, based upon your, your accomplishments, your, based upon your reputation, what you're known for, should you be a good fit for this job? And if you are, they'll give you a job. Welcome to our team. But it's not just the education world or, or the professional world that works like this. It's, it's everything. Our, 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 um, our relationships operate like this too, right? We meet somebody. We're, we're thinking, can this person be my friend? Like, do they have the qualities of what it takes to be my friend? Can they be in my circle of people? Are they trustworthy? Are they funny? Um, will they listen to me? Will they support me? And, and it gets even more intense when we're talking about romance here, when we're talking about our spouse, our future spouse, because the magnifying glass comes out. This is serious business now. Every aspect of this person has to be, to be taken into consideration. Are they, are they attractive, right? Are they, are they, do they value the same thing that I do? Are they financially stable? Do they have the same goals and aspirations as I do? And, and we evaluate them, and if, if they measure up, like, put a ring on that thing, right? <clears throat> but, but it's not just an external thing. It's something that we can actually do to ourselves as well, that we kind of operate on the same sort of resume system. Do I measure up to my own standards? Am I good enough for myself? Are my accomplishments as impressive to me? Right? And if they are, if, if they are, you feel accepted by yourself, you feel comfortable with yourself, you're accepted by other people. But if you're not, it's, it's rejection. So it's not just the outside world that can shut you out. It's also you can shut out yourself if you don't feel like you measure up. And being on the outside, feeling rejected, not measuring up is painful stuff. I, my childhood is, my junior high years especially, is just marked with all kinds of rejection, right? It's painful stuff. Some of you know what I'm talking about. When I went to apply to get into school that I wanted to get into the first time, I got rejected. It was so painful. It was so hard. Because it, it wasn't just, oh, better luck next time. It was, it was, this is you, Sam Schmidt. You are not good enough for us. That's what it felt like. It's painful. And when Paul lays out his religious resume in verses 4 and 5, he does so to show that he was actually acceptable according to Jewish tradition, that he was actually an insider, that everything that he set out to accomplish, all the, all the acceptance that he could want, he found, or so he thought, because he was thinking that his, his good works would also make him acceptable to God, but that's not the case, and he found that out the moment he met Jesus. So let's look at verse 7 here. Verse 7, Paul takes, takes all these things, his reputation. He says, but whatever I gained, my accomplishments, my reputation, everything that I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. How could, how could Paul say this? How could Paul work so hard? How could Paul be so disciplined to reach the sort of level that he's reached only to say that everything is rubbish in verse 8, it's nothing. And, and that word rubbish, this translation is a pretty modest translation because if you were to translate it literally, it would mean excrement. Paul says that everything that I have is crap. It's nothing. It's garbage. So how is it that Paul can say this? It's because Paul has found something better 
than his accomplishments. He's found something better than his reputation. Keep reading in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because, here's why, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul has found something more valuable, worth more than whatever he could accomplish on his own. Jesus, in in the Gospel of Matthew, tells this parable of of the hidden treasure. A man goes out to a field, he finds this treasure, and he is just enamored by it. He sees it, it's so beautiful, it's so valuable, that he he hurries home to go sell everything that he has. He he purges his bank accounts, he sells all of his assets, he cashes in his retirement, and he goes and he joyfully sells those things so that he could go buy this field, that he could make that treasure his own. To this man, everything he had became worthless in comparison to that treasure he had found. And the same is true with Paul. Everything was worthless in comparison to the value, to the worth that Paul found in Christ. Is is that the way that you view Christ? Is Jesus better than blank? Is he better than your reputation? Is he better than your comfort? Is he better than, than the love of your spouse? Is he better than any of these things, right? Is this the way that we view Christ? I'm, I'm convicted by this, honestly, because there are days where I'm so, I, I feel so indifferent to Jesus, to be honest. I feel so indifferent. Like, oh yeah, sure, Jesus saved my soul and all. But, you know, this is real, this this love or this acceptance, even, even to be up here and to preach. Like there's parts of me that, that desire your acceptance upon, based upon my works of, of, of preaching and writing a good sermon for you. There's part of me that just craves that where I would almost push out Christ in order to have that. But Paul finds Jesus as his treasure And in doing so, he lets go of everything he has so he can gain Christ. Because here's the thing, you can't have both. You can't have both your reputation. You can't have both your acceptance from your your accomplishments and Jesus. It has to be one or the other. And if you want Christ, if you want to gain Christ, you have to let go of your self-righteousness. And when you let go, here's why. Because when you let go of your reputation, you gain so much more. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what Paul says. You gain so much more. Browse through the Old Testament, and you'll see that Jesus offers us far more than, than anything that we could accomplish on our own. He gives us forgiveness, adoption, new life. He gives us his protection, his provision. He he showers us with his endless love. He gives us purpose and meaning. And most important of all, Jesus makes us right with God. This is what Jesus offers us. This is what we gain in Christ. It's absolutely astonishing. And in the midst of this joy, right, because Paul is saying, Paul's the joyous guy who sells everything and, and goes and buys the field. In the midst of his joy, Paul says that he suffers the loss of the things that he once held dear. What's he talking about? He's talking about the pain of letting go of his reputation, the pain of letting go of his accomplishments, the pain of letting go of these things. It's difficult. It's hard to let go of of something that that you feel like gives you an identity. Paul is letting go of his identity as an achiever and receiving a new identity as a son, as a receiver of 
blessings, not something he earned. He had to let go of the confidence that he had in his flesh, that he had in his reputation, all of this. Paul had to let it go. And what this means, Paul is repenting of his self-righteousness. He's repenting of his self-righteousness. This is how you know that Paul was a Christian, right? Paul had spent his whole life steering clear of sin. Like Paul knew what sin was, and he tried really hard to avoid it. And if he did sin, Paul would do the good boy thing. He would go and he would repent of his sin. He would offer sacrifices in the temple. And then, and then he would, you know, he'd be good. So Paul, all his life, was repenting of his sin, the things that he knew he did wrong. But it wasn't until now where, Christ, or where, where Paul was repenting of the false righteousness that he was finding in his works. Here's Paul is repenting of his self-righteousness for the first time. This is what a Christian is. This is what a Christian does. A Christian is someone who not only repents of the blatant sins that are in their lives, the things that are obviously sins, but they also repent of their reliance on self-righteousness. They rely on the things that they do in order to make them acceptable to God. A Christian doesn't say, I've been a bad person. Now I need to live a better life. A Christian says, well, I've, I've been a good person for the wrong reasons, and I've also done bad things for bad reasons, and I need to repent of them both. And, and, and so until you repent of both your sinfulness, of the things that are obviously sinful in your life, and repent of your self-righteousness, you're not a Christian. Right? A Christian is someone right, who, who worships by the Spirit of God, who boasts in Jesus, who glories in Jesus, and puts no confidence in the flesh. This is what Paul is doing. Repenting, repenting of your sinfulness is relatively easy. I, I think like we can, someone holds up your nasty, ugly sin in your life. It's like, oh man, yeah, I get it. Like I shouldn't have been shouldn't have been jealous like that, or I shouldn't have been angry, or I shouldn't have lusted like that, right? It's, it's relatively easy to come to grips with that. But repenting of your self-righteousness is difficult work. Paul says he suffered the loss. And we have to suffer the loss too, that we have to let go of the accomplishments that we relied on for our acceptance. We have to come to treasure uh, a new thing. We can't treasure the things that used to give us our identity or, or our feeling of value. We have to let those things go. And as we do, it feels like we're losing the identity, the identity we earned. We're losing the thing that made us a somebody. But here's the thing, guys. The, the suffering that we face when we lose our self-righteousness, when we let go of our false righteousness that we, we try to find in our good works, it's nothing in comparison to the suffering that Christ endured in order for us to gain righteousness. The suffering that you face in cutting off the self-righteous parts of your life and putting those things to death is nothing in comparison to the suffering that Christ went through in order to make righteousness, true righteousness, available for you. Jesus was the only one to perfectly worship God by the Spirit of God, that all of his life was devoted to serving the will of God. He glorified his heavenly Father perfectly by obeying his will, even to the point where it led him to die a death that was only fit for the unrighteous. 
And it was there on the cross where Jesus gave it all up. Everything, all of the riches that Jesus had, all of the treasure of heaven, Jesus let it go. He became nothing. He humbled himself to death. And he suffered in unimaginable ways. Physically, nails, spikes driven through his hands and his feet. Crown of thorns pressed on his head, right? Flogging and beating after beating. Physically, just brutal suffering. Relationally, Jesus suffered. He was mocked by strangers, like people that didn't even know him, making fun of him, ridiculing him. And he was abandoned by his friends. He suffered tremendous relational loss. And spiritually, Jesus on the cross was cut off from God. He lost the access he had to the Father. He felt forsaken. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt this anguish, this suffering, this, this death. To what end? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus, the sinless, the righteous man, he became sin for us. He became our sin so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus became all the nasty things about us. Self-righteousness doesn't promote good virtues. It makes us angry and judgmental. It makes us joyless. We live this life as if we're comparing ourselves against everyone else to see if I measure up. Like the, the pro produce of a self-righteous life is not something to be treasured. It's something to be punished. And Jesus takes that punishment. He feels the weight of it. He traded places with us. He took our unrighteousness, all of those nasty things upon himself, and he was put to death for them. And by that, we now have acceptance before God, that we're given his righteousness, that the, the righteousness that we've been striving for all of our life through our good works, through the good things that we do, it's now finally available to us, but it's not available to us through our good works. It's available to us through Christ and Christ alone. So now it's not... Uh, my half-hearted and inconsistent reputation that makes me acceptable before God and man, it is completely based on Jesus' perfect standing, his perfect reputation. This is so freeing. This, this is liberty. This gives us freedom because now we don't need to obsess about maintaining our reputation. Now we don't have to worry about uh, uh, living up to other people's standards or our own standards. Because in Christ, we're accepted at our best and at our worst. There's no wonder why Paul is so eager to be found in Christ. Because this means that his acceptance isn't based on his performance. It's absolutely 100% based upon Christ's and his perfect performance. Let's look at verse 9 here. He says, for our sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is coming to the realization here 
that my acceptance, his acceptance, or his, 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 um, his acceptance and his righteousness has nothing to do with his performance. His religious performance, his moral performance, whatever sort of performance has nothing to do with that, but everything to do with Jesus. This truth is sinking in deep into Paul's heart. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is the work of God. This is not of the flesh. This is from God himself. This is the truth that Paul is finding in the gospel. This is what's more valuable than anything else in the world to him. Church, my prayer for you and and my prayer for me this week, this whole entire week, has been verse 9. That we would be a people who don't depend upon our own self-righteousness, but but who completely depend on Christ's righteousness. We completely depend on his perfect righteousness for our acceptance before God. There's, there's, the, uh, there's a hymn, says, verse says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but fully lean on Jesus' name. I don't trust anything else. There's nothing else that I trust as much as Christ. There's nothing as valuable as the surpassing worth of Christ. And as we're found in Christ, as we're, we're made one with Christ, we're united with Christ, we desire the same things that Paul longed for in verses 10 and 11. And in summary, it's this. Paul says, I desire to become like Christ through the power of the resurrection. And he's saying this, that as we kill sin, as we put our, 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 oblivi- or our, our obvious sins to death, like the nasty, ugly sin that we say, oh, yeah, that's sin. As we put those things to death, as we put the, the sin of self-righteousness to death, that we can put, we find a new life in Christ. And in doing so, in finding this new life in Christ, we actually become like Christ, this resurrection, the spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power and spirit that is work in our, at work in our hearts, raising us from the dead, giving us a new life in Christ so that we'll become like Christ. So we'll become Christians who worship by the spirit of God. We'll become people who glory in Christ. And we become people who put no confidence in the flesh. This church, this is what we should desire. This is what we should look like. And it's through the gospel that we're made into these people. Praise Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for your gospel, your good news of of salvation available to sinners, to the undeserving, to the people who don't live up to your standards, to the people who can't really amount themselves to anything in comparison to your value. You save these people from themselves. You save us from our our temptations of self-righteousness. You save us from the sin that's killing us because it's all sin. It's all killing us. It's all sucking life away from us. But you offer us a new salvation. You offered us salvation free in Christ that through, that through, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are made right with you, that we are accepted. 
I think that's such a valuable thing. Help us to see the value of that. Help us to, to lay down all of the other things in our life that we treasure, whether it be comfort or our money or anything else, God. Would you help us to lay it down at your feet and sacrifice those things in order that we may gain surpassing worth of Christ Jesus our Lord. This is our prayer. This is our plea, God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.